and gentlemen, welcome to podcastjuice.net. My name is Michael Dean. Of course, you're listening to the podcast on Prince. And today we have another special guest. But before I get to that, let me welcome my friend, Big Sexy and Saxer. How are you? You know, I'm doing great. I had a remote appearance in court this morning and got a good look at my hair. I need a haircut. <laughs> the All coronavirus right. fro is out there, man. Hilarious. Hilarious. Maybe get you some clippers, man. Invest in some clippers. You did? Got to. <laughs> All right. Uh, but with that said, without further ado, we have uh, one of the uh, Minneapolis music's legends in the building. Uh, none other than Mr. Brown Mark. Sir, how are you? I'm doing good. How you doing? I'm I'm doing all right, man. I'm blessed. I can't complain. I could complain. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I heard Big Sexy talking about that afro. You know, I, <laughs> I feel you, bro. That's the same with me with this hair. <laughs> <laughs> mine turned mine turned all gray, and it's I got to put lots of gel on it to hold it down. So. <laughs> I, I, I'm with it, man. I know. <laughs> Well, yeah, speaking, speaking of hair, and I'm just going to jump right in. So um, we're we're talking with uh, Mark today, or Brown, or Brown Mark, excuse me. And we both of us have mm -hmm. had an opportunity to read uh, your book, My Life in the Purple Kingdom. And there's many things that we want to sort of talk about. But one of the things that really, uh, when I read it, I laughed and I was like, you know what? Brown Mark, that's cool brother right there. <laughs> I was like, whatever I thought about him. I identify with them. And what that one thing was is when you talk, when you talked about your Jerry curl. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was like, what? I was like, because I see me, I look at you guys. I'm like, man, you know, Prince of Revolution, that hair was bomb. And, but you were talking about the struggle <laughs> of the curl, like this pre-Prince. And I just thought that was hilarious. Oh, yeah. That soul glow, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that glistening gel dripping all over the place. Yes, sir. How many pillowcases were destroyed back in those days? Oh, man, I don't think you can count. You know, <laughs> it got to a point where I just started putting plastic bags underneath my pillowcase. <laughs> just, oh, wow. <laughs> just to save the pillow, you know, hilarious, bad stuff. All right. Well, um. Let's back up and I'm going to ask the question. I know a lot of Prince people, not a lot, but I'm sure some of them out there are going to ask uh, in regards to mm -hmm. your book. But the first thing I would ask you is why release the book now? Why, what, why are you putting this book out? Um, you know, it, the book was supposed to come out 10 years ago. I mean, that's when I wrote it. And uh <sighs> When right before Prince passed, a year before he passed, you know, he had flown me up to Minneapolis and, you know, because he wanted me to look into a project with him, you know, where this, this new kind of thing he was putting together. It ended up being Third Eye Girl, which, you know, I'm not a girl, so I didn't fit the bill, but it was going to be something different before that. So we got to talking and, you know, I let him know I'm releasing a book. You know, I have a book I had written. And I want to release it. And he just kind of looked at me like, uh, do I get to read it first? And I was like, of course you do. Hmm. And, um, the, but the interesting thing is it's, it was about me. It's not about him. And he's in it because he's part of my life, a huge part of my life. And the way me and him intertwine were like friends, brothers, family, 
and we had our feuds and we had our happy moments. So all of that um, has, it comes with its roller coaster of ups and downs and in very influential part of my life. I was 19 years old. And, um, you know, as a result of so much that came at me so fast, I dealt with a lot of drama. I, you know, I had, I had psychiatrists. I mean, I, I was dealing with depression. There was a lot of, a lot of things, a lot of elements. So, um, my healing was to write a book. That's how I healed. I could express myself through the pages. And then once I read it and I let a couple of people read it, they said, man, you need to put this out uh, because it has an in, uh, influential value and an inspirational value uh, that a lot of young people coming up and even people that are our age can read this and feel inspired by it. That if you put your heart to something, you humble yourself, you know, and keep moving forward and not step on your own toes, you can actually succeed in many things that you're striving for. So that that's the basis of the book. It was that book to help me heal through a lot of things I was going through, but then as it uh, entered its completion, it became more about, wow, a lot of people could, you know, glean from this and take something away from it. Okay. Well, I will say the first part of the book where you talk about your childhood was probably I didn't expect that, but I'm so glad you put that in there. That I think for and particularly in today's climate of what's going on right now as we're recording this, I think a lot yeah. of that's hitting home with the Minneapolis that a lot of Absolutely. us outsiders didn't even understand or know that existed there, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. And I grew up in that, right in the middle of that. I was a little kid, so I got to see it all. Yeah. What? So just to go back, man, because I think, again, I'm going to just be honest. I've only seen you through, you know, videos and concert performances. And it was hard to gauge Brown Mark. Like, I, I knew was a, this is a black man. Right. I'm, I'm a brother, too. But I was like. I just didn't know where his background was. And I meant reading this, I was like, and I had watched my language. I'm about to this cat right here has <laughs> got to be one of, the, one of the downest cats that then came out of that camp as far as what we've got to see. Because the stuff that you talk about going through, a lot of us were mm -hmm. like, okay, yep, I remember that. And just even dealing with some of your friends and how they would perceive things that we do, you know, you know, dressing a certain way, like everybody else didn't dress. And, Absolutely. You know, so yeah. can, talk to me a little bit about just early Mark back in the days, man, because you had a lot of misadventures in that book. Um, <laughs> but uh, just even, and I, this is what I wanted to ask you, and I'm rambling. I wanted to ask you about your dad, uh, because your mom is mm -hmm. very much mentioned in the book, Mama Vader. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was the relationship with uh, you and your father early on? during this time? I, I didn't have one, you know, and that's the interesting thing is I grew up a street kid. Uh, a lot of people look at me and they go, and they meet me, and they, they, I have a very nice disposition about me, you know, I'm friendly and what have you. So a lot of people don't see me as a street kid, 
but I was, I was hardcore street kid. Um, and you know, I grew up in that because my father wasn't there. You know, I ran to the streets and met older guys. Most of my friends were five, six, seven years older than me. And, uh, I, I roll with these kind types of people because for one, when I was young, I was bullied a lot. Mm. And so as I grew up, I gravitated towards people with a certain edge, you know, roughnecks, as you want to call it, um, people that were a little tougher than the average kid on the street. And so I rolled with that pack because it made me feel safe and it toughened up and thickened up my own skin, you know, cause I was a mama's boy. And so that's how I balanced that. So, um, when it came to the, you know, growing up in that environment, the way I would dress, the way I would see things, it was so different because I didn't have to worry about, um, falling into any particular pattern because I didn't hang out with anybody except for people who thought like me, which were a lot more mature. So I, I didn't care about what people thought, uh, how people viewed me. I just didn't care. Uh, old dad pops. Uh, I mean, he would come in and out of my life for a week or two, you know, come over to the house, stay with my mom and, be like, why, why is he here? And then he would leave. He'd just disappear again. And so there was a lot of anger, a lot of uh, confusion about what was going on. And I was too young to process it. And so as I was growing up, you start learning from the street how to process that. And it's not the correct way, but it is all I had. And so that that's what set the stage for a lot of my... Um, my, my hustle in life and a lot of my downfall, a lot of my, you know, mental trauma, because I just did not have the direction. I didn't have anybody to teach me anything. Everything was trial and error. I'm a human being. Once you go through that so many times, sometimes it'll take a toll on you. You know, yeah. that was me as a kid growing up. Now and I mean obviously your mom was a definitely guiding force though right like I mean was she working all the time working a lot as well as you all the time worked right. two jobs Got it. she worked two jobs okay. my dad my dad was an engineer my dad had a degree in in engineering and in uh, nuclear nuclear science wow you know smart man but he didn't give us nothing he even took all he even took our tax my mom's tax return. Therefore we didn't even qualify for basics, you know, like uh, uh, food service or anything in school, nothing. So my whole life became a hustle because I was hungry. I just wanted to eat mm. and I needed clothes. I had to hustle. My mom, my mother could only, when it came time for the new school year, she could only buy me so much. So I took to the streets and I was a hustler. I hustled cash. I don't know anybody that was my age, 14, 15 years old, walking around with $500 in his pocket. Mm. I, was, I was a hustler. And and you talked about yeah. early on you wanted to get, uh, was it how you bought your bass guitar? Or was it an instrument that mm-hmm. you were trying to get and you had to go raise the money, you know, get out there in the streets and get your, <laughs> get your, get your money, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, them green stamps. 
I don't know if you remember green stamps. Oh, yes. Man, I, I was those. a green stamp hustling joker. And, you know, the cool thing is they took a lot of that, you know, the editors, they took a lot of that out of the book. Because, um, you know, when you write a book, it's, you know, sometimes things just get removed. And one of the things that got removed was my whole green stamp story, the depth of it. Okay. Uh, but it was a very important piece to me because... Um, that's when I learned how at a young age to get my hustle on because green stamps were cash. That was money. If you knew how to, you knew how to, you know, uh, convert it into green. Okay. And, um, yeah, so that's what I would do. And when I realized that I couldn't purchase an instrument through the green stamps, what I started to do at that point was then, um, uh, figure out different ways to convert the money through people and then ended up getting a job throwing papers, you know, yeah, from the Star and Tribune working with a guy named Stan. Yeah. And so I had two hustles going on and that's how I was able to save enough money to purchase my first guitar and amplifier. And how old were you at this time? Gosh, I had to be six seven. Wow. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I was a kid. A lot of people get blown away by that. You know, I, I, I've been, I've been hustling since I was six, seven years old. I've been earning money since then. That's, that's how I learned. Mm. Um, another, and we're jumping around, but another interesting point that I was uh, surprised that you go into in the book is sort of your early relationships with the young ladies. And women, right? Like, you know, I, I thought that was yeah. an honest thing for you to sort of to dive into and how you felt about that. If I'm, and correct me if I'm wrong, did you sort of yeah. get a mistrust uh, of women? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, there, there was a whole time period that I just did not like them because I thought that um, they were devious and, and, you know, their whole game was to get what they want. You know, they see something they want. They, they throw that game at you. And, you know, I just had a bad experience, you know, but I was, again, mama's boy all the way up to, you know, you know, 16 years old. I mean, I was, I didn't even know what that was about because my hustle was so strong. I wasn't into the whole female thing. And then when I finally did uh, meet a female that I started liking, you know, it just all went south. You know, and, you know, I leave that in the book for people to read, but it went south for me. And it, it developed this uh, anger that I didn't even know I was angry. Mm. You know, two, three years later, I started to realize it through my mother and my sister. And, um, you know, that's when the change came because they, you know, were helping me to realize that, dude, you, you know, you can't, you can't go through life like this. You can't go through life treating women like they're just objects, mm-hmm. you know, but when I was young, that's, that was the reaction because of the things that happened to me. And and I won't we'll save it for the book, but that whole part where you're talking about you sort of uh, tiptoed your foot into the pimp game for a second. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what's going 
you know what the funny thing about Minnesota that a lot of people don't realize, man, that's Pimp City. Really? Back in the day, yeah, that was Pimp City, man. It's like everybody I knew was a pimp. Wow. And again, yeah, I told you I hung out with older guys, so you know they was all pimping, big pimping. You know, <laughs> I mean, they was that was their lifestyle. And so here I come and I wasn't, I didn't know nothing about that. So they trying to teach this to me. And I was like, Whoa, no, no, no. <laughs> you know, my mom would kill me. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and then I meet this one girl and they trying to, you know, they trying to throw that at me and they're like, man, go get it, go get it. And again, you know, you're looking at a guy that doesn't know nothing about female interaction because I was just sewing a whole different hustle. And so <laughs> I started Hanging out with this girl, man, it went south really fast, mm. Be, you know, because I, I just I ran from it because it just wasn't who I was and I didn't identify with it. Yeah. And that you know? that part of the story, I mean, you could have really I'm not, you know, the, the, the outcome of what happened with that. You could have really been in some stuff with that, man, like because we've seen his story. Absolutely. Like that. Yeah, that's. Yeah, that was cool, Absolutely. Right? And then for me to, you know, for my name to be vindicated was right. You no, know, so I, you know, I knew. I've always felt my whole life, you know, I had guardian angels. They they was watching over me because I got into a lot of crazy stuff, but I never went down. You yeah, know, you, there was always a way out for me. Uh, it almost re- read like a movie. I saw it as a movie. The the section where you were talking about uh, your boys. I think wanted to use your car and yeah. go for a run or something like that. And yeah, man. I'm reading that. That was like, some common stuff right there. Yeah, that's yeah. That, you could have got you could, again, you could have got hemmed up on that one. I mean, I was you know, when you, I, I was driving since I was fourteen. I owned my first car at sixteen years old. Nobody had a car at sixteen. Mm. You know, I went to the car dealership, got me a car. And so uh, I was one of them kids in town, you know, I had the curb feelers on, I had the bad stereo system, you know, you could hear me coming four or five blocks away. <laughs> he was that dude. You know, that was, I was one of them dudes, you know. And um, so I, that made me a target though for, you know, you know, to get used for a lot of different things. Mm. And so, you know, got myself into some stuff. A lot of stuff ain't in the book, you know, but I got myself into a lot of, a lot of deep, deep cornered, you know, I got cornered several times with stuff. And, you know, I learned valuable lessons from it, you know, about who to trust, who to run from. Mm-hmm. And again, my mother was always there for me. So. Wow. This is an off question, but I'm just thinking of family. Where, where Did you have other family uh, members there as well, like grandparents or something, or you got separated from them? Or? No, um, my grandmother, she passed away at a, when I was young oh, okay, sorry. and my grandfather, he died when I was like a boy around six, about around seven, eight years old, he passed oh, okay. away. And so I really didn't have them at all. And then, um, my, uh, father again, like I said, he just wasn't any, right. anything to me. At that time, we bonded later in life, but back then, he was nothing to me. Okay, okay. And um, again, I don't want to spoil things. I just want to ask things around things. But 
talk to us a little bit about, you know, just in terms of the climate of the bands and, you know, putting in that work to be good enough to play and play out and do shows and stuff. You guys, how, yeah. you were obviously very young performing and stuff yeah. too, right? Yeah, started when I was 14. And uh, it was interesting because the Minneapolis scene, I was on the back end. I was at the end. And actually, after me, Mint Condition, they were like the end of it. Mm. You know, there was Mint Condition, Grand Jury. There were a few bands in town that came after that. And they, you know, like were from Kansas City, Chicago, and different areas that kind of migrated into the scene because it was it was so hot. But I was one of the last of that, um, you know, that uh, that age group that that you know live music was happening uh, for us. I was one of the last of the generation that was involved in it because after me, you know, hip hop scene came in and it just took over mm. and, and people started dropping the instruments and then also they removed music from the school programs. Mm. So it, it made a huge change on what youth could get into. So um, when I formed my first band, Private Stock, which later became Fantasy, um, we used to do battle with but uh, flight time, you know, and, and me and Jimmy, uh, not Jimmy, Jam, me and Terry Lewis used to work together a lot okay. and throw after our parties. Huh. My band would would open and then his band would close flight time. Okay. And um, but there were a lot. I mean, back then, man, it was the bat. The bands would battle. <laughs> it was cold blooded, man. It was like if you were in that scene, you were somebody. You were respected. Mm -hmm. Well, so I was deep in that scene at a young age. W walk us through how that battle. We've heard of these battle of the bands, many, but but what was it actually like? Say, we, say, well, I'm coming to this show. How does does a band? You guys go first or second? How does that work? Well, uh, fantasy. We would go first because flight time, man. They were just. They was. They was cold. I mean, you know, we couldn't even mess with them. We knew they was bad. And so it was more of just a, um, a ploy to get people to come in. Okay. You know, it wasn't really a battle. Um, but I, I just remember flight time and they had, uh, bird, <laughs> the, the, uh, um, no, what was his name? Uh, I'm drawing a, drawing a blank. Uh, it'll come back to me, but flight time, man, they had so many elements to that group. Yeah, Cynthia Johnson. I don't know if you remember her. She sang her. funky town. Yeah. Ooh, man, they were bad, bro. I mean, that group was bad and that's where the time came from. Mm -hmm. You know, Prince came and he took them and, and later created the time. Alexander O'Neill used to sing in my band fantasy. Really? Yeah, <laughs> that's crazy. I used to drive. I used to drive Alex around after rehearsal. I drive him around. Wow. Okay. And because uh, I had a car, you know. Man. And uh, yeah, that's how we all intertwine. We all know each other. And and the music scene. I remember Jimmy Jam used to DJ. Man, he used to, there was a all teenage. 
<laughs> disco that all the kids used to go to Jimmy Jam be up there spinning them records. <laughs> and you know, but he was a bad keyboard player. Wow. You know, and he I forget the name of the band he played in. Wow. But yeah. Then every summer we had the Phyllis Wheatley Festival. I remember we got to open for um who was that? The uh, the Whispers. Okay. Man, they tore that stage down. <laughs> I remember we opened up for them and then they came on. I was like, good night. <laughs> you know, so I, my, my experience with a lot of the bands that I was able to play around and with is how I grew. Cause I, like a sponge, I would absorb mm. everything, the bass tones, the, the way the technical and the audio work. I mean, I would absorb it. Let me ask you this question in regards to that, because I know a lot of times musicians and anything where you kind of have to buy equipment for people sometimes always. Well, what kind of equipment did they have this? How important was that for you at that time? Because reading the book, it didn't sound like you had like the top of the line stuff. And I could be wrong, but yeah, you know, how did you, and especially You're at the age that right. you were, how did you get, yeah, how did you, 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 you hustled to get the equipment, but were you stuck on like, I got to go get this and what's this person using that type of thing? No, no, not back then. Back then it was all about, as uh, long as it made some noise, mm. you know, it wasn't until as I uh, started growing in the scene and we started making a little money that I was able to realize that, a Sears amp does not have the same kick as like a PV, you know, a, a brand that is designed for mm. the stage. You know, a little Sears amp is designed for you to be at home and it looks good and everything. But the real deal, there's a huge difference. Uh, I remember I kept blowing fuses all the time because I didn't have the power. I'd have the bass turned all the way up and it just sounded like a muffled rumble sound, mm. you know, because I just didn't have the wattage and I didn't understand what that meant. But then going and seeing other groups and especially those Phyllis Wheatley festivals, uh, listening to what the other bands were using, then I started to get into brand, branded uh, equipment. And I started off with PV. Okay. As far as amps, and they were very powerful. And then I noticed my sound changed on stage, got cleaner, got stronger. And and that changed the way I played. So it's all a growth. As your equipment changes, your style will change and you'll get better at what you do. Okay. Um, going back to this time, because you mentioned Alex and Jimmy and Terry and them, and and when you joined Prince, he, he was already, you know, a few albums deep into it. How, aware, or what was sort of the presence of Prince during those first two albums for you guys in the town? You know, like, how did you guys perceive Prince before you met him? It, it's interesting because I had always heard about him. And, like, he, I remember he came and he did the Capri. Mm -hmm. He did a show there and he did another show somewhere, but he didn't get the, he didn't get the reception he deserved here in the States. I think it's when, and I could be wrong, you know, Andre Simone would be like a better person to ask, but I, I think he went over to Europe and that's where he 
had his, you know, his revelation, like, oh, I know what I need to do. Because when he came back to the States, it was on. His look changed. Everything about him changed. I was like, he had this whole rude boy thing. I was like, ooh, this dude is cold-blooded. And so I started patterning my whole style after him. Hmm. You know, before I even met him or knew him, I, I you know, he became the go-to. That's, that's who I need to channel my energy to, that guy. And um, who would have known that he saw me the very same way I was seeing him. Wow. I, I guess he saw that in me, you know, because I, I stood out like a sore thumb, you know, in the later days of fantasy. What do you I'm mean? Wearing still... <laughs> <laughs> I'm wearing plastic coats. I'm wearing plastic coats and ripped up jeans and with nylons. And, you know, I mean, I had this whole androgyny I was developing. Mm. Nobody was doing that back then. Yeah, no. What, what, what did you, did other musicians or people in your band or musicians that you know, were you guys, uh, was Prince respected to you guys at that time or was it just you guys didn't know who he was or? Oh, oh he was much respected. See, again, I was younger. I was about four or five years younger than even the band I played in. Okay. They were always older than me. And so they all had the utmost respect. I didn't know a lot about it. Okay. It's only what I heard. And I remember when that first album came out for you, I mean, I was blown away because I had heard he played all the instruments on it. And when it came on the radio, I'll never forget. I was driving down 35W, you know, again, you know, I'm a young kid. I got a car and everything with a bad stereo. And so <laughs> I'm driving down the street and I hear this junk and I'm like, whoa. Man, and he played all the instruments. Changed my life from that moment forward. Wow. That that was now, it wasn't about being in a band anymore for me. It was about getting in the studio and learning how to develop a career mm. out of it. Okay. Because it's what I wanted to do. And who, who were some of your influences uh, musically at this time? I had a lot of them. I mean, I can't even name them all. I mean, I listened to everybody, absorbed everything. Okay. But I would say Larry Graham, Sly Stone, uh, Jaco uh, Pastores. I loved um, um, Stanley Clark, Chitteria. You know, I mean, I was into a lot of different stuff. But Cameo, Slade, Mr. Yeah. Mark. Mark Adams was like, that was my boy. <laughs> okay. You know, that they had that whole rock funk thing going. I was like, yeah, that's where I'm, I sit right there. James Brown. I mean, you name it. I, I was into everything. Bootsy. Yeah, you name it. Okay. Okay. Um, you talk about getting the call from Prince to audition for his band. And at the time you were in your band and it sounded like there was some drama going on. But one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, you know, stepping away from your band, trying this new thing, opportunity out. And it sounded like there was a lot of pressure I'm to the point where somebody pulled a gun out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Man, like. Yeah. It got. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Oh, it, it got bad. 
Um, and, and I think, <clears throat> don't get me wrong, I loved my band to death, every one of them. I'm just telling a story, you know, and sometimes you gotta, you gotta tell it right. You can, you can't leave certain things out because it, it, um, it expresses a mood. It expresses the feeling and the anxiety and everything that all the energy of the time period. And I think with me, that was my departure because I was starting to think and feel very differently than the rest of my bandmates. And they saw that. They saw me uh, moving. I was going to the left. They were going to the right. And we it was a fork in the road. And so I think what that did, because I was one of the formers of the group, me and uh, the saxophone player, we formed the group. And so here, you know, one of the formers of the group, I'm, I'm heading left. And they see this and they're like, what is he doing? You know, it kind of caused the division between the Southsiders and the Northsiders mm. within the band. And we loved each other, but it, you know, a family feud, families fight. And um, so it caused a little tension, you know, even to a point where that one time that, uh, you know, I got the gun pulled out on me. And, and I just remember I was just like, wow, really? You, what you, you going to shoot me? I mean, you know. And, and and I wasn't scared. I was more, you know, I wasn't more mortified. I was scared, but I wasn't mortified, but I was more like, wow, really? I, I, I thought we had more than that. Mm. And in later years, oh man, me and him, we, you know, I'm not going to mention his name, but we became so dear to each other. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah. And it's because it was just, there was so much emotion going on because I think they knew at that point he's departing, he's leaving us, mm. you know? And when I left, the whole thing just fell apart. Oh, the other band, I was the, the hustler. I was the one. Yeah. yeah fantasy. Yeah. yeah. I, I was the hustler. I was the one that held that stuff together. Me and Michael, hmm. you know? Wow. Yeah, I, I, that that really I I was like I was like my man. He's sort of crossing the threshold, leaving his old homies behind. Yeah. Not you know, not so like leave him in the yeah. wind, but you had to you know ascend and do your thing. Um, I, you have to, yeah, and that's the hardest thing in the world, you know, because it's like it's like when you go to war, because that's what it was. We you know the musical war in the streets. You know we're trying to make it. So when you go to war, you don't leave anybody behind. But this situation was so unique because it's like you only get a few shots at the right. at the at the title, and what are you going to do? You're going to just leave uh, leave that uh, opportunity alone just just so you can hang with your homies? No, I'm trying to get up out the hood. You know, I mean, I'm right. trying to elevate, and so that was a hard decision for me as a you know 17, 18 year old kid. You know, very hard decision. And it brought a lot of tension. Even when I tried to change the sound of the band and the direction, I wanted to get more into the pop, you know, market because I knew where the money was. Mm. You know, they wanted to stay right where we were. It was comfortable. You know, I'm trying to move forward. Wow. And, and there were a lot of, a lot of differences there. Yeah, man, that's no, I was just going to say, sort of, yeah. Well, no, I don't want to cut you off. Go ahead. I was just going to say a lot of differences there in 
of what success is and what it looks like. And like I said, I think had I not like um, patterned my walk after Prince's, I don't think I would have ever really got to see what success was really like because Prince understood it. He understood what it took. Andre understood it, you know, Terry and Jimmy understood it and look, look at them. You can see what happened mm-hmm. in their, their careers. You know, so it's one thing to understand it and walk that walk. And it's another thing to just be a good, good musician and stay planted where you are because you're comfortable. I was never comfortable. I always wanted to keep moving. Okay. Um, what was I say? So, and, and then, Preceding going to this uh, tryout thing with Prince Audition, you had a brief mm-hmm. encounter with him earlier, which I'll say for the book, but I thought was very hilarious. And and the young lady you mentioned, uh, Kim Upshur, is that her? Kim, name? yeah, yeah. She is mm-hmm. like she had a brief little clip in the Purple Rain movie, right? Or they show her absolutely, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, Absolutely. Kim was, you know, bless her heart. I mean, she, she, you know, she passed away, but Kim, she was part of my childhood, you know? I mean, I grew up with her working in the restaurant, you know, before I even knew Prince. I mean, so there's, there's a lot of history there. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Beautiful person, but just to see how it all came together was amazing. You know, looking back. And uh, how small this world really is. <laughs> oh, for sure, for sure. Uh, one thing I do have to, I have to do I have to ask you this. Um, so you and this may be pushing forward a little bit, but one of the parts you talk about maybe one of the first like real rehearsals that you had with Prince. Mm-hmm. And man, mm-hmm. I when I was reading this, <laughs> I I was like, nigga, like I don't know if I would have made it yeah. past that first day, but and it's and it's gonna yeah. be quite the to hear you talk about it, but did this man literally kick you and ask something like, "What?" I was. Yeah, I don't want. I don't want to get. I don't, I don't yeah, want to get too much into it. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a good read, and 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 the way it reads, you're really going to understand the determination and and the. It's almost. I felt like I just joined a football team. You know, in the in the coach is in my ear. You, you ever seen like how they get the screaming at the players? Yeah, yeah. And and it's like, whoa! How did how did they even take that? I I wouldn't let nobody talk to me like that. But here I find myself in the same situation. And when you're confronted with that, there's only two ways to go. You can react like you would in the street, or you can look at that dream and say, hmm. Do do I want to endure this and follow the course? Mm. See, because there was there's there's only two ways to go. There was nothing in between. And my mother always told me, you know, because I was going to quit. I was done. And, and, and that wasn't the first time. And right. so I was just done. But she said something that resonated with me. She said. He's doing what you strive to do Mm. don't let anything stop you from reaching your goal she said because you can get over that but look at everything you're going to take with you 
you know, and that sat with me. Again, you know, a 19 year old kid that sat with me. And um, so I had to really think about what I was involved with and all it was, he was just a coach and he was doing what coaches do. You know, he, you know a lot of people look at him and be like, nah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Put hands on you. <laughs> yeah, you know, but you know, I, I really had to weigh it out. You know, I mean, come on, I'm a big dude. I ain't, it ain't like That's I'm a little scrap. And so, so it was like, you know, okay, that was a cute little kick. You know, it, you know, it didn't really hurt, but you know, it's like, it was the principle, you know, dude, I could whoop you, you know, <laughs> I knew what could have happened right there. You know, I could mop the floor with you, but is that, what's the outcome of that? Right. And I was, because I was such a, a kid of the street, I was able to really see beyond that. And, and say, is that really what I want to do? Do I want to throw all this away? And then I had to ask myself, too, why is he doing it? Mm. Why? And um, my mother helped me to see this, that he is trying to break me. Because when you go to, you know, like being a POW, what's the first thing they try to do? Or if you go to prison, they break you. They have to break you before they can fix you or readjust you. You have to be broken. Hmm. And uh, all your habits, everything that you become used to, everything that you're about, it, you cannot conform to that way that he wants unless he breaks you. And, you know, I took on that type of a um, understanding of what was happening. And so I was able to get past it. And then once I got past it, I mean, he had the utmost respect for me. Hmm. And, you know, Prince had, he had hella respect for me. Yeah. I don't, you could ask anybody that's played with him after me. They'll all tell you that he spoke highly of me. Okay. You know, because I earned his respect. Wow. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a monumental moment. I think is of just the way you just described it, because to have the foresight and thank God for your mother to put you up on that, to be like, look beyond this part of it. This is just a piece Absolutely. of a journey type of thing. But yeah, I mean, shit, I was like, yeah, if nothing else, she could have got one of the homies to <laughs> go and tighten him up or something on the low. I'm just joking. Man, dude, <laughs> me and him had come close so many times. As, as, I, as, I, as I read. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot you left out, yeah. but... Oh, yeah. Family feud. That's where I, I just sum it up like that. I used to beat my poor little brother up. So I just looked at it like this is a family feud. Gotcha. He, he done took me into his family. Let me just ride this. OK. Were you yeah. close to any other of the band members during that time? Or did you get closer to any of them during this time? Just um, just Lisa. OK. Um, Lisa. Lisa was new as well. She had just joined a few months before I came along. And um, so the minute I came in, I guess she already experienced what I'm about to. And um, she really took me in. She was very protective of me. You know, Prince would start being mean to me and she growled. You know, she gave him that look, you leave him alone. You know, 
and very she became very protective like like mom you know and you know i love lisa to death because lisa uh me and her forged the bond way back then because of what we both experienced uh with him and uh we we grew to love him as older brother. He became our big brother. He really did, you know, and there, there's a lot of endearment there, but there's pain that comes along with that. And that's where a lot of people don't want to hear it. You know, they don't want to hear the painful side, but reality is I don't care who you are. You know, I don't care what stories you've read, James Brown, Elvis Presley, Chuck Berry, uh, Ray Charles. I mean, there's always dark sides. You can't leave the dark sides out because that's what makes them human. Mm. You know, you gotta, you gotta show people that he's human. That's what made him such a cool dude, man. That's what made him so beautiful. You know, it's like when you, when you can share, when you can see both his human side and his genius side, man, that that's a crazy combination right there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You, uh, I, I, I want to ask you about all these things, but I don't want to spoil them from the book. Cause I was, you could, you could seriously, have, I could see this be like a movie, like a, a TV or Netflix, like a Netflix, you know, oh, Spike and, and, uh, and Tyler Perry are going to get this book. I'm, I'm sending oh, okay. it to both yeah. of them. I can see it, man. There's so many. Because just... I'm I'm hoping. Yeah. That would be awesome, man. Yeah, I'm hoping. Yeah, I'm hoping because, you know, I looked at it the same way when I got to read it down. You know, I was like, whoa, you know, this is so inspirational. This could really um, be a good message because even though it has dark sides, it is such a positive book. You know, and, and that's the message I really want to push with people. It's this is not this dark story where I heard somebody say in an interview, not an interview, a blog a couple of weeks back. Uh, Mark is angry, still angry with Prince. Mm. It's in his 176 page memoir. I'm like, I am not angry with Prince. Where, where did you hear that? I mean, I even confronted him. I was like, Wait, where did you hear that from? What are you talking about? You know, I'm not angry. I'm telling a story. Haven't you ever gotten a fight with your brother or your sister? <laughs> That's just part of growing up. Well, you know, we fight. Yeah, for sure. We, we, obviously, you you are probably already aware. There's going to be, I say quotations, Prince fans that's going to try and come for you a little bit, just because just oh, because yeah. you are being honest, right? Like the stuff exactly. That so, I mean, it is what it is. Uh, uh, a, a few other things quickly is to ask about. Um, one, I'll say you had a very, you had a great, I'm not, we're not going to go into it, but you had a great vanity, like the first time you saw vanity. But, <laughs> but I wanted to, in connection to that, I wanted to ask you this in connection to that. Uh, I am, I'd imagine you remember Big Chick. The, oh, man, that was my, Big Chick was one of my best friends. Okay, I'm glad you said. So yeah. I don't know if you read his book, but I actually read his book that just came out. Uh, his family put out a book that he that he apparently wrote. Was it? Uh, he was a slave or something. Like that? Yeah, white slave. We're not going. I won't go into that whole title thing. It's, that's, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, but yeah. in the book he mentions vanity, and I wanted to ask you this because I would imagine you were there in these times. He's calling her Patty. 
before he identifies her as being Vanity. Do you remember her being called Patty back then? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Never remember her being called Patty. Okay. It's yeah. it's a very. Cool... I, I don't even know what that's about. You know? Well, he would just he would say he was like, yeah, uh, Prince met this uh, lady. He saw her from the stage and had me go get her. And her name was Patty, and you know he introduced her, and then you know she eventually starts to hang out more and stuff. Well, and, see, go ahead. Big Chick wasn't around when Vanity came on the scene. Interesting. Yeah, he wasn't even around. See, Vanity came on the scene when I joined back in '81. Chick didn't come on the scene till '83. Interesting. Late '82, '83. He didn't. He did not. Vanity was already in with us. Okay. So I don't know what that's about, but you know, they need to do some fact checking. That's there why I wanted to ask you. See, okay. I'm glad you said it. Yeah. That's how I was trying to figure out. I don't know if he meant to say he's talking about Apollonia, but the way he describes the meeting, I, I was like, doesn't the timelines don't sort of add up, but okay. And, and Apollonia was never on stage. Right. She was an actress. Right. So I don't understand. Yeah. It, that, that, that's a weird, I don't know anything about that, so I can't speak on it, but you know, it, it, I can say it didn't have any reference to vanity. Okay. I can definitely say that because he wasn't around. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, we'll leave it at that. Um, yeah. Couple. So, all right. So what I wanted to, the purple rain, what did you, Oh, I know what I was going to say, um, I was, uh, I could hear the young lady's voice when she said, "You not Andre?" Or something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, ain't, you ain't Andre. I could already see. You ain't Andre. I, I see. I already. <laughs> mm, mm, honey, mm, mm, you definitely ain't Andre. <laughs> I was like, ooh, man. I'm sitting there like, what? You know, I was ready to just get nasty with her, and I was like, Mark, you know. Don't even go because I was, you know, all kinds of profanity was getting ready to come out my mouth. <laughs> you know, and my manager, my manager walked over there. She was like, you know, Jamie Shoop. I'll never forget that. She was like, Mark, just ignore him. Just ignore him. You, you're going to make your own name for yourself. And she, <laughs> it was almost like she said, poor boy, come on, come here with me. It's going to be okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I was like, that's, I, I, I know our people. I know the sisters. I know they was like, who is, the, oh, yeah. where's Andre? At? Yeah, who is that? <laughs> yeah, that's what it was like. Who is that? I said, uh, I'm Brown, Mark. And, well, I was Mark Brown at the time. Mark Brown. And they said, I knew you ain't Andre. You <laughs> never going to be Andre. I was just like, oh, snap. Like, okay, Andre got some fans out here. <laughs> <laughs> Salute to Andre some more. Salute to him. Um, like, Let me go out here and, and, and get my afro on or something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah, that's hilarious. Um, but but then you owned or you you got your spot. You became Brown Mark, and they knew your name, like to the point where they, they had the that's banners it. out there and all that good stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, man. And then um, the shutdown came. I didn't even get into that. <laughs> man. I ain't gonna get into that. Man. Listen. Yeah. <laughs> I had to I, 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 straight out, man. I got I mean, what was was my man hating on you? Like was he and I couldn't understand like you would think why would a guy in his position feel like that? And that could be another story, but I mean, was he just trying to yeah. like kind of like, man. How are they going to give shine to this cat? This is my show. Yeah. 
Yeah, I didn't I didn't want to touch on it too much, uh, even in the book, because, um, you know, again, it's just one of those things where what what's the importance of it? And I think the importance of the, me telling part of that story is just to let people so that people understand where a lot of my anxiety and stress and frustration came from. Otherwise, they would never know. Mm-hmm. And so I had to explain to people that I am a human being with a conscience and with, uh, you know, I demand my dignity like anybody else. And, you know, you want to see good for your hard work. So when you reach a pinnacle and then you start realizing that um, you're starting to disappear from the, the limelight. You, you start questioning, what is that? Where's that coming from? And so me and him had many, you know, yeah, we had many bouts with that. You know, we went back and forth because I was never one. To, I don't, I don't hold my tongue. I tell it like it is. I'm not afraid. I just, I'll call you out. And I, I would call him out. I would always do it in private though. I would never do it in front of people. And embarrassing. I mean, he was my boss, not my boss, but he was my band leader and I had respect for him as such. So I would never front him in front of people. Mm. So it was always in private, but you know, he would come up with all these excuses, and, but I knew what was going on and I respected him for it though. Cause after a while I had to start to say, well, you know what? This is his state. This is his, mm. I chose this journey. I don't have to stay here. You know, that's why I formed Maserati because that was like my alter ego Maserati would have been me had I never stayed in the revolution. Mm, okay. See, and that, that was my outlet. I could feed and live vicariously through that creation because that's what I would have become. Interesting. You know, and I dedicated my life or my music, my music life to Prince because I wanted to see him shine. I wanted to see him grow I, I saw where we were going and I wanted to be a part of elevating that. So that was a choice I made. So, you know, after a while, again, my mom was the one that would really help me to see how I really should be viewing this, not in a selfish way, but in a selfless way. You know, why are you doing this, Mark? It's because you're trying to help him grow and you're just soaking in the knowledge. You got your band, you take the knowledge you learn from him and you elevate Maserati. Mm. See? So that that's how I was able to get past that. But then it comes into a whole financial thing. You know, it's like, well, what, what am I gaining from this? And then that's when the history took a drastic turn. You know, as is very well documented in the book, what happened there. So. Yeah, and, you know, Sue, I'm listening to what you're saying, and I'm, I hear you, but... I was curious, like, because you you have that hustler spirit in you. And I was trying to figure mm-hmm. out, like, how do you or maybe you do see what he's kind of doing and your place yeah. in it. And like, Absolutely. you know, what I mean, like, I'm trying to figure <laughs> out, like, I'm trying to feel like do you you're like, nah, man, I don't I'm allowing myself to be done. Like, because I'm reading we're not going to go all the details, but some of the stuff I'm like, yeah. is he is Mark allowing Prince to kind of. Run game on them. I'm allowing it. Okay. Yeah, I'm allowing it. 
you know, and it's because once I come to the realization that there's only two ways to go, <laughs> beat him down and quit <laughs> or, or embrace it. Mm. And if I embrace it, what am I going to get from it? Okay. You know, um, I walked away when I finally said, dude, I had enough. I, I it's time for me to go. It was all respect. See, he had the utmost respect for me because he knew I tolerated him. He knew that why I was there and, and I was there for him. So when it was time for me to go, he respected that. And, um, what, it, what happened when I left? I mean, I had record companies seeking out, seeking me out. Mm-hmm. I had a huge deal with Motown. My deal was massive. It was like, you know, well, there's my payback for all my hard work right there. Okay. I, I got to sit at the table with Barry Gordy and eat with gold tip, you know, <laughs> wine glasses and, and eat lunch with him in his library, mm. you know, sit under his dining room table with a waterfall and a, and a fish thing. I mean, you know, we're talking Barry Gordy. We're talking yeah. his mansion up in the hills, a billionaire. You know, he took me to his uh, computer house or his administration house, which was bigger than my home. And it had three, four stories and he's taking me and showing me all the different departments and they're just people on computers. And I remember he looked at me and said, looked at the guy, he said, Hey, print, print that out, print that out. Guy prints it out. It's a, it's a pie chart. And and he says, these are my Arabian horses. I'm like, Oh my God, (laughs) he's flexing. I ain't never heard nothing like this in my life. That's the game right there. You get the knowledge, and that's the real game right there. Because when I saw the power that Barry Gordy had, I was like, man, Mm. that's what I'm talking about. That's real power. And I see, that was the only thing I'll say about the book. I wish you went more into your Motown years. That's my next one. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's my next book. Yeah, that's why I saved it. I didn't, I wanted to leave it at Motown because it's a whole new chapter and it's a very interesting one. Yeah. You know, because it is when I really learned the industry and why Prince became what he became, Mm. you know, even writing slave on his face. I mean, there's, there's so much more to it. And uh, so this next book, I really want to get into the negative dark side of, of the walk, uh, Prince's walk, my walk, all of us, even Andre, you know, cause that was a dark, there's a dark side to this industry, a very dark side. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk and get more into detail on that. Okay. Well, I would love to, to read that. Um, just backing up mm-hmm. again. Uh, I, I wanted to get your opinion on, I don't think you spoke on this on the book, but, uh, two things. One, one, you did speak on sort of being in uh, the theater watching Purple Rain for the first time, right? And not not expecting mm-hmm. the response that people had. Yeah. 
which I thought was fascinating yeah. for somebody who was in that <laughs> world, not realizing the rest of us would freak out and be so all into you guys. Yeah. Um, you mentioned you mentioned one thing about making the movie, which I didn't know about, and I won't say what that is. I don't want to spoil your book, but I'm gonna ask you about something else. Were there other things from the movie that you remembered that obviously did not make it into the movie? Mm. I mean, mm. there there were there was a lot of things that didn't make it. But what I find most interesting that I didn't really touch on in, in the book is just the level of, and I hate to say this, I don't, you know, I don't know how else to say it though, the level of narcissism hmm. that I started to, I started witnessing. And, and uh, when I, I say that, because you know, when you, when you get to a point in life where you're just, you're huge, you're big, you got to watch, you, you can never forget where you come from. Don't forget where you come from, you know, and, you know, don't, don't treat the people who helped you get there, you know, be careful how you treat them. And I'm not talking about the revolution and <laughs> myself. I mean, I'm talking about everybody, you know, I don't, you know, I don't know. You could talk. I, 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 I haven't read Morris's book, heard a lot about it, mm -hmm. but there's Morris, there's Alex, there's, Jimmy and Terry. I mean, when you listen to some of the stories, you, you, there's a common thread. The common thread is, you know, we matter. Mm. You know, we matter. And uh, that's what started to shift and change. We, you know, we all suddenly felt like we don't matter anymore. And uh, when that, the movie is what woke me up to that, you know, in, in, in the way uh, the many, many different characters were formed and then the way they were treated. And, you know, even when he passed away, how the industry and the people who started to take charge you know, how they treated certain people mm. in the camp. We're, we're one big family. And, and yet you could feel and see all that division. And I'm like, where does that come from? Why is there so much division? Why is there so much anger floating back and forth within the camp, the Minneapolis camp, you know, not going to say the purple camp. I'm going to say the Minneapolis camp. We all grew up together. We only have each other. And that's why I was really happy how me and Terry Lewis, you know, got back together. Cause I hadn't talked to Terry in years. And then, you know, past couple of years, we, we've done things together. A couple of things, you know, Super Bowl and the Grammy thing we just did. And, you know, I was really able to, you know, 
chat with him on different levels than in the past. And, you know, and it, it, it's just beautiful how a lot of us have now come full circle and we have reunited in, in that love and that bond. And we were able to look back and see all the stuff that was happening and, and have a firm understanding of why and where it came from, mm-hmm. you know, and that's closure right there. Cause a lot of the fans may get mad when they hear uh, all of us talk about our lives, but you know, our lives matter too. We, we were affected by the things that happened and that counts. Can't just discard us just because you don't want to hear it. Mm. You know, I always say, you don't want to hear it. Don't read it. <laughs> That's it's your choice. But, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. And you, uh, you're asking some great questions because when you look at Prince, there's such a, there's almost a generational pathway of people involved in his career and a part of that spear. Right. Absolutely. You got the people yep. that was there from the beginning all the way to, and it's funny, interesting how you even say, yeah, ties to Third Eye Girl and sort of what where that spawned out to. And those are whole other yeah. younger people and musicians. And I'm curious, and, and this is something us fans, we always sort of wonder, why is there, it seems like there's division amongst the different generations within Prince. Like, what what is what is that about? Like, you know, see, and that's that. See, that that's gonna. I'm gonna touch more on that in my next book because that is exactly what I'm talking about. The why, the big why, and the big why is because it was an atmosphere that was created. Mm-hmm. You know, just like we kind of see the atmosphere of the world today. You know, it was created, and. It, you know, I have a very strong theory on how it was created and the, the masterminds behind it. And I'm going to really, I'm going to really expose them. I'm going to come out and talk about it with some realness. Because again, you know, I'm not afraid to, to, to speak my mind and, but I'll articulate things in a way where nobody gets hurt, but I'll, I'll just tell the truth about how things started to transpire, when and why. And I'm just going to throw this out to you, answer it or not. Is it when uh, other sort of behind-the-scenes manage, management-type people or certain people start to get invested in this to, to, to Prince? That's a huge part of it. That's a huge part of it. Mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and see, and that's the side nobody knows about you know, there, there's a much bigger side to this that people don't know about and they don't realize. And uh, I think it's interesting to expose it only because even our, our younger artists today, this newer generation of artists, they don't realize that we paid the way, we paid the price for them to be able to collect the kind of money they collect to this day. Mm-hmm. I would agree. They'd be walking around with stacks of money in their bags and everything. We couldn't do that back in the day. Cause there were too many gatekeepers. We sacrificed, we paid the, paid the way and paid the price for them to be able to do what they do today. Mm. You know, you got your people like your P Diddy's and your, your, uh, um, master P's and your, you know, uh, uh, what's the other one? Um, uh, I mean, there's so many, there's the, you know, there's the Suge Knights, Yeah. The so many of them. Yeah. Yeah. I would Suge, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of them that were able to, they they were able to 
share in that revolution to really open that industry up to where we can now start having more control over what happened with the dollars. You know, but when I was coming in, man, it was a, it was a set thing. And Prince, uh, Prince, I believe spearheaded that, Mm. that fight. As an outsider, I would, I look at it as it just looks like another case of uh, divide and conquer. You know, somebody saw here's okay. Prince is the, he's the money, he's the guy and I need to get him isolated enough so that I can have him focused on this and these other people. I need to keep them, you know, separate, Absolutely. you know, so I can get my money together. Absolutely. You know, that's, that's how I look at it as a younger person. I was like, here they, they ran that game. It's Absolutely. Playbook, you know? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You said it, same playbook. Yeah. You know, a lot of people get hurt in the process, you know, but we, you know, we're pawns. So we don't matter. That's why I call it war. I mean, you know, we were on the front lines. Just send them to the front lines. You know, where all the people behind the scenes, they, they're the ones that are glorified. They're the ones that elevate. Wow. Yeah. This, and, and, and you're right. You know, I think of the, you say your book is inspirational, but I also think it's a, the book is some lessons learned no matter what you go into but to understand the difference between business and, you know, you know, buddy relationship, like this is a business. Like somebody can tell you one thing, Absolutely. but that paperwork is going to decide <laughs> the, the, the real deal. And if you don't Absolutely. got that paperwork, then it's your word versus theirs or, or whenever they get around to doing the right thing. Cause you know, looking, looking at that time, I mean, the, 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 the kids situation, I was like, man, I've heard the story before, but it's just like, I don't know what was, I don't know if you had a lawyer or if, if you could even have a lawyer in that conversation where, you know, would it, would it make it go a different way? But I was, it, it was pure trust. Yeah. It was pure trust, you know, because you trust the ones you're with, you know, when you become family, you trust your family. Right. You know, and that, that's, you know, that is part of the heartbreak that, that that's where the therapy and stuff comes in. See, because once, once those bonds of trust are broken, man, it's hard. And, you know, now you struggle with the rest of your life and anything you decide to deal with and get into now, it's a struggle for you because of the damage done to your own person, you know, your own self. So, yeah, very a lot of lessons in this book, a lot of things for people to take away from it. You know, anybody wants to look at it and think that I'm just angry, which, you know, it's obvious you don't know me because I am far from angry. I just, uh, you know, I'm a storyteller and, and this is a story that I feel had to be told um, because it has inspirational and educational value to it for any, any person that is trying to accomplish anything in their life. Don't make the mistakes I made, but yet have the determination that I had and keep pressing forward. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Oh, I don't think you, you touched on this in the book, but I always wanted to ask about this and I've heard Wendy speak on this. Uh, the, the sign of times album, Mm-hmm. I think she she said that she saw that as a prince in a revolution. 
right. Well, it was. Okay, that's not what to ask. Yeah, about. it was about that. Okay. Yeah, when 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 I quit, see, you gotta remember about Prince. You know, we were always an album or two in front. Mm-hmm. See, um, bands that preceded us. I mean, you know, Prince pretty much wrote. He would write the music, and then you know, the bands would learn it. He'd call some of them in for a session. You know, to play, do session work with him and stuff. But but he was the writer. If you look at any of the Prince and Revolution albums, it says produced by Prince and the Revolution, written and produced by Prince and the Revolution. See, that that tells the whole story right there. You know, a lot of people think we were hired. No, we weren't hired. We were a band. You know, we 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 were a band. And he was the band leader, you know, and so it's a very different setup. And uh, so when it came to the songs and writing the songs, we were all 100% invested. You know, my style, my writing style, everything that I was about was invested in him. That's why when I wrote music for Maserati, when I wrote music for myself, it was a challenge for me because I couldn't do stuff that sounded like what we were doing in the camp. So I had to learn how to develop different styles because you know I had to live something else musically because we were already doing that revolution. And so, you know, uh, we, when we would help Prince come up with these creative ideas and these songs and things, it was usually a couple of years before the album came out. A lot of times he would go in back in the studio and pull these tapes out and he would re-record a lot of stuff because he's producing it on somebody else. Mm. You know, Joe Jones or somebody, you know. But a lot of the sign of the times, a lot of it was revolution. Okay, wow. Um, yeah, Wendy was definitely correct in saying that. Okay, I I, I hear through the through the purple grapevine that they're going to be, you know, getting ready to put that out again at some point uh, soon. Yeah, I heard that too. Okay, yeah. Okay. Um, Maserati. <laughs> uh, well, I wanted to ask you this: Do the, at the time that this was going on, you know, going back when they were first coming out and reading about them in your book did the members did any of the members of the Maserati feel a certain kind of way about you in terms of like because you would seem like you're the leader of that I mean that was your thing and it was and and again correct me if I'm wrong it almost felt like they just kind of had to fend for themselves a little bit because you know you were overdoing some other work and stuff and I'm curious did that cause any division between you and them of what happened with them no. Okay. See, and here's, here's a misconception, and a lot of it is due to them uh, in the press spreading lies. You know, they lied a lot to the press. And one of my fallouts with them was in confronting them about their interviews. You know, they were attributing a lot of their growth, their success to Prince. And, you know, when I put that, put that group together in 1981, you know, Prince didn't know who they were. They didn't even play. They were kids I went to high school with. So um, when I created and formed them, 
you know, they rehearsed in my mother's basement. And so there was a lot of history. I was the leader. Maserati was me. Mm. They were me. You know, every, 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 the way they played, the way they approached the jam, everything, it was, it was all me. I, I would sit there and get on each one of their instruments and we would jam on a song for hours, you know, and I would take the things I'm learning playing with Prince and I would, you know, use it with them. So I created this whole vibe, that whole androgyny, that whole, that whole rock funk energy. I created this thing and then Prince sends me over to Europe, locks me down over there when they signed the Paisley. And then they began to be dismantled. And once they were dismantled or broken, uh, their ideologies changed. And then the lies started to come out. And when the lies came out is when I came back and recognized that, you know, something changed, something's wrong. Yeah, they were fending for themselves because I was out of the loop. I was stuck in another country being told I needed to do photo ops and, and press and what have you. I was like, it was kind of strange. I'm over here doing press and whatever. And I only uh, show up at the end of under the cherry moon, holding my jacket over my shoulder. Wow. Why am I here? Um, and so I started putting two and two together and I started realizing what was happening and the group was being dismantled. You know, it was systematically being dismantled. And my whole thing was why, why, you know, and that's here nor there. The, the end result is, yeah, they, they collapsed. I mean, drugs, alcohol, you know, mm. crazy lifestyle. Just in what I, oh, hold on. Sorry. Um, with without their leader present, they they just unraveled, you know, because because I was their leader, and so when I was removed, Terry Casey, the lead singer, was forced to take that position of leader, which he just didn't know enough about how to do that, and and that's why it started to unravel, and unfortunately, by the time I came back into the states. I couldn't fix it. I tried to put them back together when I got on Motown, but there was so much, um, I don't know, just so much animosity and blaming and pointing fingers that I just couldn't deal with it anymore. So I, you know, I dropped them from the Motown label. I was like, nah, I'm done. Wow. And that was the end of my body. Yeah. Two questions. One, did you guys have separate managers that I was very curious, like when you're dealing with the superstar, like a prince, do you have your own manager? Mm -hmm. or are you just an employee? Uh, and, and no, no, I have my own manager. Okay. I have my own manager. Yeah. Prince dealt with me near the end there. Prince dealt with me through a manager because, um, I had to get away from the, Hey brother, <laughs> You know, right. hey, big brother, how we how we gonna do this? You know, oh, don't worry about it. I got you. See, I I couldn't do that anymore because I had lost too much, and then so now I have a manager who represents me, and so that's when things shifted like greatly, you know, and uh, 
and, and, and when I say shifted, I'm not saying shifted against Prince. It's just, it took on a different turn where he didn't deal with me anymore. I didn't deal with him. Managers and lawyers dealt with everything. Was that, a, that that's, that's how. Was that mm-hmm. better for the both of you guys that, that, that you did that or? It, it was better. And I wish it was something that I knew how to do two years prior because <laughs> many things would be very different. Mm. but I didn't know how to do that. And so I just, you know, I'm always looking up saying, Hey, you know, what, what, what are we doing? You know, where I should have been talking to a manager saying, Hey, what are we doing? Mm. So, okay. you know, the the other, no regrets. Not for sure. The other part I was going to ask about Maserati. So after all of that, that just happened, as you said, what turned it around where you guys, because obviously you guys are all, you know, they're back and doing stuff. And what, what was it time that healed that? Or did you guys just have to sit down and decide to figure it all out? How'd that work? Well, to be honest, you know, uh, Bad Boys Pays Me um, is my new band. That's, that's who my band is. Um, and it only consists of one Maserati member. Yeah. All the rest of them. Yeah. Um, all the rest of them kind of fizzled away. Uh, one, one of them is very sick, so he can't play with me. Um, but, uh, as far as the rest of them, I mean, this, this level of dysfunction and I, I just can't deal with it anymore. I mean, I'm, I'm an older man now and, and I don't have time to carry anything. It's like either you, you come to the field to play ball or, you know, you know, go somewhere else. Don't bother me. And that's kind of what happened with me and them. You know, I spent $47,000 trying to pull them back together. And it was just the same old stuff from back then. I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm done. I'm not spending any more money. I'm not going to lose any more money trying to uh, save, you know, uh, a group of people who have no respect for me. You know, for whatever reason, they have no respect. You know, they got their own idea, ideas of what they think happened in life. And they blame me for a lot of it when it wasn't me at all. But that's here nor there. Everybody lost in that situation. And uh, who lost the most was me. Because not only did I lose a life's work, but I lost a ton of money, you know upward of half a million dollars trying to keep them afloat when they, when they, you know, a lot of people say they were out there fending for themselves. It was my bank account that financed them, not the record label. It was my personal money that kept them afloat. It was my personal money that paid the bus driver so that they could get home and tour. You know, it was my audio company and truck that they had out on the road. See, okay. nobody wants to look at that. They just want to sit back and say, you know, oh, you know we got screwed or we didn't, we didn't get this or we didn't get that. I'm like, you know what? Everybody, everybody's quick to um, point fingers instead of looking at themselves saying, you know what? We didn't do the right thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't do the right thing. 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What? Uh, a lot of bad blood there, but I don't. I don't hold anything against anybody. You know. Got you. Well, hopefully, it's, you know, things can heal. Hopefully, when some people, you, like you say, you mm-hmm. got to keep it moving. Um, Absolutely. One of the last things I ask is, um, after your last Motown album, until the this is a long period of time, but it, and then when the revolution gets back together, some of the fans are asking, "What was Mar- what was Brown Mark doing during that period? Because w- were you putting out music? Were you?" Touring session work. What what was keeping you? What was keeping the, the you know keeping you afloat? Because you said you was a hustler. So yeah, yeah. I re- I retired from the music industry in 1992. Oh wow. Yeah, I was done. I went and did work for a production company in Detroit, producing artists. Um, you know, I was responsible for many many record deals and got artists up and started, got them going, and. Then I just got to a point where I was like, you know what? I need to take a break from this. I need to clear my head. And um, got married, had two kids, two boys. Okay. Raised my kids and just went back. To, I, I put myself through school. Really? Uh, got a degree. Yeah. And, you know, I and I said, you know what? When I got done with my degree, I was like, let me let me try. Let me see what it's like to just do a normal life mm. while my kids are growing up and uh, started working for a company called Coordinated Business Systems and moved on to Icon Business Systems. And then from Icon, uh, they I got moved down to uh, Florida <laughs> where, wow. where I was interested, where I was uh, introduced to real estate um investing okay and that took a whole different turn for me because i love doing that and so so i just you know i spent about 12 years of my life just being normal mm. you know none of this rock star stuff just being normal and uh then i started back in uh 2000 prince calls me up and flies me out to Minnesota, and he says he wants to put a band together that has the revolution feel with me, John Blackwell, you know, Morris Hayes, and a few others. And I was like, I'm down. He said, okay, hmm. uh, learn these songs here, and, and, and you know, we're going to get started in July. <laughs> and then he says, just wait to hear from me. And then so they call me up, and I'm like, oh, they want me to move to Minnesota. So I, I uprooted myself and moved from California to Minnesota. And when I got there, it never happened. I sat around for two months and nothing ever happened. So, you know, Oh, welcome back to the music industry. (laughs) So since I was back, yeah, since I was back in, I said, let me, let me just make the best of it. I formed an underground radio uh, called the underground radio. It was the first of your, Pandora's and stuff like that. It was before any of them existed. And I formed the underground radio and, uh, kind of, kind of had a falling out with partners and because they just didn't see, I, we didn't see eye to eye on where that should go. And, um, you know, so I put together a group called cryptic and I found an investor and, 
we did the cryptic album. And so, you know, from that point wow. forward, I was back in the industry, back. My hustle was back on. Man. You know. <laughs> that was the realest shit you ever said right there. <laughs> Just that whole said, I went back to school. I married. Yeah. Kids went and worked. At, see, a lot of people need to hear this type of stuff, Mark, because, see, they just think that, oh, you, you know, yeah, even a revolution, they, they paid forever or, you know, they did have this album and that's all they ever do. So, no. Went back and started working, <laughs> took care of family. Exactly. That's some real shit, man. Like, people <laughs> need to hear that kind of stuff because you got to take care of responsibilities. You got a family now. Absolutely. Right? You still got to live. Absolutely. You still got a whole life to continue moving on. Yeah, I, yeah, I needed to hear that, man. That was, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's that's my next that's my next book. It's gonna get real, real. Ah man, it's gonna take people that. deep into the light. Okay, wow, yeah. that's very interesting too. In terms of, you know, up now, I don't know where are you, and I'm. Listen, I'm not trying to get too all into your personal shit. So you tell me when I'm mm -hmm. back to back up. But when you said you moved from Cali to, um. Minneapolis again is this you uprooting your family to come with you too or is that just a different situation because that's a big thing no absolutely okay uprooted uprooted and uh my wife got a job at working for Aetna and okay. I was back in the business hustling so and the kids were still not grown and so you know I didn't want to do anything until they were full grown, but so I started hustling back in the business. But um, by about 20, 2008, the market crashed. Mm. So, you know, the real estate, I went belly up there and then the music just, the business had changed so much that my hustle was just harder. And so we packed up, we moved back down to Florida and, you know, um, I got back into the tech sector, I started going back to normal work just so that I could survive while I'm trying to figure out this music game. I built a studio and I just started writing. I was working with NSYNC. I was working with uh, Johnny Wright and all of them, uh, you know, that whole Orlando scene, uh, Britney Spears, when she first came out, I was involved with all of that back then. Wow. Okay. Just nobody knew it. Nobody knew what I was doing. Yeah. And then, um, and then, uh, no, go ahead. Well, no, I was just curious. Cause I mean, d do you get a lot of people like recognizing you or, or they're like, yo, I, oh, are, are you the dude from probably? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was hard. It was hard. The, the hardest thing for me was the questions. Why? Mm. See, well, the reason why is in the book. <laughs> right, right. You know, another reason for writing the book is because, you know, it, I, I just wasn't done right. And, and so I, I have to pay the consequences for that for the rest of my life. You know, I shouldn't have to go back to a hustle after playing in the biggest band in, in freaking universe. <laughs> I shouldn't have to, well, but you know, things took a drastic change for a very nasty reason that I had no control over. And so I had to just live my life out the way that I did. And, uh, finally I ended up back in California 
But that story is just, uh, woo, that's a whole nother story. That's why I said it was another book because it was just tragic, a tragic story. Mm. So I ended up back out in Cali and then, um, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm still working the music industry. I, I did a album called Six Mill Breach. And um, so I'm still working to get myself back in the industry when um, Prince calls me yet again uh, out to California. I mean, Minnesota. And you and, and you just went uh, out there on the love of it, right? I mean, because did, did they like y'all? Just pay, on the love of it. I'll pay you to move and all that, or no? No. Right? Oh, okay. Wow. No. Yeah, the love of it. Yeah. And so I, I, I flew back out there. He flew me out and sat up in a hotel room for two days and I was like, okay, can't get a hold of him. I'm sitting in the hotel room for two days. And then finally I was just like, I saw John, I, I went down to the, the front desk and I said, is John Blackwell in, in this hotel? And they said, yes, he is. And so uh, I get on the phone with John and he says, does he know you're here? And I was like, I don't know. Does he? Mm. And, and so, um, he says, hold up. And he calls him. He forgot that he flew me in town. Wow. Uh, yeah. He forgot. And I was sitting there for two days. Just, you know, when are we going to, um, figure out what's going on here? <laughs> so anyways, I go out to Paisley park and I get to see him again. We sit down and we're eating soup and, you know, he, you know, at the, at the, in the kitchen and we're talking about old times and he just looks at the place and he goes, you know, you helped me build this. Mm. And I said, yeah, so give me the keys. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I said, so do I get to come in anytime I want? He yeah. says, well, you know, you, you're, you're invited here anytime you want to come back here. And I was like, cool. Uh, so what's going on? You know, he told me about this new, this was before third eye. He told me about this whole thing that he, that he was going to try to put together with me and some of the other cats. And um, it just never is the same as the last time. It just never worked out. And uh, I went back home. This time I didn't uproot myself and went back home and never heard from him again until he passed away. Mm. You know, it broke my heart because, you know, we were just now getting back into the swing of communicating again, you know? Mm -hmm. So, and then he passed and broke my heart. Wow. Were you always in contact yeah. with any other revolution members during that time? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, me, me and Wendy and Lisa lost touch for a long time, but Bobby and Matt, I was always in touch with them Okay, on the regular. Mm-hmm. Wow. So when we came back together, we flew to Minneapolis uh, after his death. And we all just, you know, we ended up in Minneapolis in a hotel lobby on the upper floor of the hotel. And we all just met together. Um, you know, I wasn't invited to the funeral, so I didn't know what was going on. And um, so we just kind of had our own little gathering. Okay. Yeah, and we all gathered together up there just to mourn together. And all the PRN alumni, all the people that worked 
with us in that time period. They all gathered there with us. We all kind of just united just, just because we were all stunned and in shock by the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And that's when we figured out, you know what? We need to go back on the road and give back, mm-hmm. you know, share, share that joy and that energy we had with him. We need to give that back. Let's, let's, Let's go play for the people and, and give them back that sound and that feeling and that energy. As many people say, um, you were the soundtrack of my life. Okay, so let's let's give them that soundtrack back. Mm. Let's go play for them. And that's why when you go to a revolution show, it's very reminiscent musically of what we did with Prince. Mm-hmm. Very reminiscent. The arrangements and the sound of the whole thing. And, um, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I got a chance to see you guys a couple times and, and I was, uh, pleasantly surprised on how you sort of stepped up and, and, you know, you were singing lead on and up, up front. Well, <laughs> I got to do what I always could do, but was never able to. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it just, it helped out because it's like uh, me and him had a similar voice in certain songs. And so it was easy for me to kind of fall into those parts, you know, and I always had his energy. I mean, like I said, I used to, like a sponge, I absorbed him. So I knew how he, you know, got the crowd hyped and, you know, I I just come from that. So it kind of, I kind of just fell into it very easily. What time? And Stokely came along, and we were like, "Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's amazing. He's amazing." Yes. What's uh, what's the future of the revolution? What do you guys do next? Um, you know, with this COVID thing, I mean, we just kind of locked down really, and there's no gigs. Every every one of our tours got canceled this year, and um, they're still you know, parts of this country that want to see us. And then, you know, there's other countries around the world that are just dying for us to come out. And we, we just can't, you know, it's, we're, we're on lockdown now. You can't get booked for anything in, um, 2020. It's just not going to happen. Okay. So 2021, I'm hoping that changes. I'm hoping that, you know, we can, you know, get back out there and do maybe a world tour or something. Okay. Uh, in the in the meantime, between time, I see that you are very active uh, on social media online, uh, doing online performances Absolutely. and stuff. Absolutely. That's for sure. Now, do you, you have know, any I'm, I'm, I'm a hustler, bro. <laughs> I'm a I'm a hustler, bro. I don't stop. <laughs> you gotta keep it going. No, I, I, I'm, I'm working on this whole concert series, this whole Minneapolis concert series. So we got some sponsors behind us now. We got the NAACP. We got Music Cares oh, from the Grammys. Yeah, we, you know, we're trying to get a couple of liquor sponsors on board. And I got great things coming, man. I just, I'm working on some stuff that's going to be real entertaining for folks. And of course, none of it, it, it all costs a ton of money. So that's where I'm trying to figure out how to balance, how to, how to do it to where I can at least recoup the expenses, um, 
you know, nobody's going to make any money doing it, but it's entertaining okay. and the people love it stuck at home. I mean, you know, on a Friday night, what better thing to be able to watch a concert? You know, I'm really going to try to put this thing together where the revolution, uh, with not going to say the other group, but we're going to do a, <laughs> we're going to do an online thing That'd be awesome. where it's okay. us, us versus them. And it's going to be really phenomenal, oh, but okay. it's, okay. yeah, <laughs> but it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, but I'm working on it. So it's coming together. And this next one I do, I think they got it scheduled for sometime here in late June. And, uh, that's just going to be me and friends. Um, hopefully, um, I can get Stokely on board, um, if he's not too busy and a few other, other people. And we're just going to do a little, little hour show. It's going to be nice. Okay. Looking forward to it. Uh, mm -hmm. big sexy, you jump in real quick or. Yeah. Yeah. Real quick. Um, <clears throat> two things. One, you know, you grew up, you know, as a musician at a very, very young age, which is really cool. And learn to play bass when you broke two strings on your guitar, which, okay, full disclosure, I did the same thing. <laughs> um, yeah. But being a musician, which I am not, <clears throat> uh, but I've seen a billion concerts, everybody goes through, musician-wise, that is, goes through dealing with the hostile audience. And the way you re the way you reacted and reflected on the whole Rolling Stone situation, you were pretty level-headed about the whole thing, even though everyone else was freaking out. You were pretty just, okay, this is a hostile crowd. Let's deal with it. And I really yeah, admired yeah. that, especially at such a young age. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, again, you know, um, you know, with playing in fantasy, the fantasy band, when I started uh, uh, getting the band to start doing more than just, we called it the Chipman circuit back then because there was only a small circuit we could work with then. When I started getting them to branch out, you know, we started getting hired by, you know, corporations and stuff. We, you know, we do these shows where everybody would be lit, you know, they'd be drunk, just lit up. <laughs> and, you know, we come in there playing some cameo and they wanted to hear some, you know, some John Wayne or whatever was hot back then. And, so we had to quickly learn how to improvise almost like the blues brothers, you know, when, yeah. when they went into yeah. the club, yeah. And you had to switch up and, and that's what it became like. So I got used to dealing with hostiles and, uh, when, and playing for different types of audiences. And so when I got with Prince, when we were going to do that Rolling Stone, I had never seen that many people in one place before but I understood the hostility that was about to come our way because that crowd, I, I already knew what kind of crowd that was. And I was like, Ooh, this is going to be an interesting combination. We're going to get up here and sing this kind of stuff that has a lot of very suggestive lyrics. And I was like, this is going to be really, really interesting. And we, I'll never forget. We got up there and played Jack you off. I was like, Oh, Lord, I said, save us. <laughs> Man, I thought there was going to be a riot. I thought they was going to stampede and just destroy that place. Damn. Because, you know, I ain't never seen so many. We got, they, 
everybody was flipping the bird. <laughs> Throwing stuff. I got hit with like I'm dodging Jack Daniels bottle. I got hit with a bag of Kentucky fried chicken. <laughs> you know, <laughs> a grapefruit got stuck on the keys of my my bass, threw me way out of tune. I mean, yeah. we're dodging all kinds of debris. And Prince got hit upside the head. I, I believe it was like a silver dollar a quarter or something, but it hit him right upside the head. And I remember that was it for him. <laughs> I remember he just stormed off the stage. I'm standing there like, Woo, okay, what do I do? <laughs> and then so I just kind of just, you know, strutted off the stage running after him because everybody was gone. Mm. So wow. it, it was an interesting time period. Yeah, it, very interesting. And then he was really embarrassed for me because that's really my first gig with him. And he's like, you know, it's not going to be like this. You know, I don't know what he was expecting. I, I think he was thinking that I was like, oh, no, Prince, I can't do this. <laughs> this, is, this is not me. And all that work that he had done to groom me, you know, I think he was kind of fearful that I was going to, you know, walk. But... I was in it for the long haul, so. Wow. Yeah, interesting time. Yeah, that's always a classic performance. I, I wonder, I, I would, I'm sure it would have came out by now, but man, if that was filmed, that would be quite the sight. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> to see that. Uh, no kidding. I would love to, uh, somebody to see that bag of chicken hit me. Cause that, <laughs> that jump was funny. You get hit. Chicken got a certain feel to it, you know. Just bam, hit me on the shoulder. I was like, "What was that?" Wow, that's look down on the ground, man. You could tell it was some K Kentucky Fried Chicken. I was like, "Oh snap!" Man, you know. <laughs> you had to watch. You had to keep your eyes open because that stuff was coming up on the stage. Wow. When I saw them Jack Daniels bottles, I was like, "I'm dodging." You know, you trying to do your little dance and you dodging stuff. <laughs> <laughs> And know, shoes, bras, underwear. I mean, everything was flying up there. And was that the first show you did with Prince? Very first one. Wow, that's why. You know, I did a First Avenue, what they call, you know, First Avenue show, which was like a, um, like just a warm up, mm -hmm. just to get us ready. But that, you know, my real first show was the Rolling Stones. Yeah. I can only imagine you guys walking onto that stage and you just see the sea of people and just like, Oh, <laughs> okay. Nine, 90 plus thousand. Wow. Mm. And it was festival seating. So when I say 90, not just up in the bleachers, but all on the football, on the field, mm. wall to wall, they were hosing them off. They had big fire hoses and they're spraying the crowd like cattle. <clears throat> wow. And you just see all these red bodies from the heat <laughs> and they're just spraying them down with water hoses. It was the craziest thing I'd ever seen. Mm. Mm -hmm. What? Uh, oh, I know another thing that jumped out in the book and I, and I had to I laugh when I you would, would mention it was uh, but you were strapped up. <laughs> you, you had weapons. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. I, I rolled like that back in the back in the day. That was they called me Fort Knox. Yeah. I had weapons everywhere. You was, you know, that, that was just how I rolled. 
where did that start? I mean, did you have guns before that point or was it just like, they getting a little too crazy. I got to protect myself. No, you know, it, it, it's part of where I grew up, you know, okay. just that whole environment and um, the paranoia that develops from it. Mm. You know, when Prince didn't know that a lot of us carried, you know, he never knew. Oh, wow. Now, I, I remember um, I was with Maz, a couple of Maserati members. We just got done working out at the house in the studio and we, there was a Perkins on Highway 7 and we were, we left, we were in the car. I was in my van, I had a red van and you know, I had a sawed off shotgun in the back and some other weapons. And um, so I remember the keyboard, keyboard player, he comes running out and he jumps in the van and he's like, let's go, let's go. And I'm like, you know, so I just pull off. I'm not thinking anything of it. About seven to eight squad cars pull me over on Highway 7. Mm. I looked over at him and I said, what did you do? <laughs> <laughs> and he's just looking to the ground, you know, and he's like, <sighs> he says, you know, I got mad because my soup was cold and I threw it in her face. I was like, what? <laughs> so they got us all lined out on the highway. Mm. Spread eagle on the ground, face down. And then they go, what's in the van? You know, they got me up and they said, what's in the van? I said, nothing. And they said, well, open it up so we can see. Now that's an illegal search. Uh, you know, that's an illegal search. They had no right to search. Right. But, you know, I don't want no trouble. You see what happens when we start trouble. We just end up dead. Right. And so I was like, I was like okay, okay. I said, but I'm not going to open it. I said, you can open it. I'm just going to tell you right now that saw a shotgun in it. <laughs> First thing he says, they pulled their weapons out and I got my arms up in there. They all got their weapons out and they said, well, we're not going to open it. Open up the van. Mm. I was like, dang it. I was like, see, this, this is going to be the last day of my life. <laughs> so <laughs> I have one arm up and I take my left hand and I grab the door and I'm pulling it back in a way where I am non-threatening whatsoever. I'm not leaning in or anything. I open it and I point. I see, see, there it is right there. Man, they slammed me down on the ground like nobody's business. Mm. You know, slammed me down on the ground and pulled the gun out and they got holding it all up in the air. They emptied the chambers and everything and they're holding it up in there and they're like, what are you doing with this? What are you doing with this? I said, hey, I said, I have a lot of guns. I said, I, I you know, I, I'm registered. I can carry that. And he says, no, you can't. You know, the only thing people do with these is kill people or rob banks. And wow. So long story short, they run my license plates. You know, you know, we, we had keys to the city. I mean, everybody knew who we were. They ran the license plates and they came back. And, and they're all lined up taking pictures with me in handcuffs wow. and the gun up in there. Ain't that a bitch. Every cop, yeah, Polaroids. They're saying, we need these just in case you rob a bank. <laughs> and could you, we need your signature on them. I ended up signing the photos. Wow. <laughs> so somewhere out there, there's photos <laughs> with policemen holding guns up with me in handcuffs, and I signed them. <laughs> Talk about yeah. I was with the. We got one of the Prince people here. Yeah, yeah. Stop. 
They, now, they never told me that they knew who I was, but I know they did. The minute they ran my plates. Right. Wow. Because every time, you know, like when I'd be speeding or something, and we would get pulled over, they'd say, slow down. We don't want you, you know, to get hurt or blah, blah, blah. Just slow down. And then they'd let me go. Hmm. Never got tickets, nothing. You know, we had, like, privileges. And, um, but that particular incident, because of the gun, you know, they made a spectacle out of us. Wow. Promise. This is the last question. I, I will say this. We recorded a review of your book. We just haven't put it out yet because we want to wait until the book, you know, gets closer to coming out. One, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. one of the parts that we ended up talking about in this review was when you went to go buy a, a car at the dealership and the, the way that you were oh, treated. Yeah. Well, we started yeah. we started having a conversation. We were kind of going back and forth. And was I was asking, I believe I was saying this too, like, why, why did you end up buying the car after the way that they were treating you? Because I was kind of like, there was only you want to give them their money. Yeah. Them, but go ahead. Yeah, I didn't want to, but there was only one. There was only one left in the state of Minnesota. Just one. That's right. It was the last one. I, I had searched everywhere for this. And this was when that Trans Am was really hot. That was, you know, the, that that was a Midnight Rider or whatever. I mean, everybody wanted that car. Night Rider. <laughs> you know, Night Rider, Night Rider. Yeah. And so I was like, I got to get this car. This is the last one. I was only home for tour just for a little bit. <clears throat> and so I knew I was going to have to go back on the road. I had to have the car. And so, but what I did is, um, I bought it on my terms and, uh, it was that, uh, that, uh, sales rep. I said, I'll buy it from her, you know, and that was it. And the dude that w- was talking all that crap to me, he didn't get the commission or anything from it, mm. you know, and the sales manager didn't know what was going on. They didn't know, you know, this, this was the actions of the sales rep. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he was, he was a jerk. Listen, Brown Mark, man, I so appreciate you coming on here and spending the time and really breaking down some of these stories and lessons and experiences with us, man. This is this was a good one. I appreciate you for that. Um, Absolutely. Where can uh, people want to find out and stay in touch with you and follow you online? Where do they go? Um, well, there's there's a few places. The main place I uh, encourage people to, you know, keep in touch with me is bmnation.com. That's my webpage. Um, it always has links to the latest news and everywhere else that you can find me, which, you know, basically there in Instagram, that's brownmark underscore Prince and the revolution. That's my uh, Instagram page. So I keep all my news updated on there. I actually have a PR team and that's what they do. They just keep it. They run that page and they keep it loaded with uh, content and latest news of what I'm doing. All right. All right. And the book, my life in the purple kingdom by Brown marks coming out in September of this year. Absolutely. So yeah, I have a feeling they're going to release it sooner. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I know they got the pre-order right now. So I know the people that pre-order, they'll probably get it a lot sooner than that. Oh, nice. All right. Yeah. 
Well, all right, sir. Uh, thank you again. Ladies and gentlemen, please leave us your comments and uh, thoughts on this. Uh, let us know what you think. Big, sexy, and sack, sir. Thank you for joining us as well. And as I always say at this time, work it like a job. We'll see you next time. Peace.